Hi, this is Bruce Boxleitner, and you're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Kind of a sick school is this? Uh oh, don't go! The plane! Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend! I love to celebrate from in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Up your nose when you have the phone. What? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off! Come to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? <laughs> I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. A huge percentage of our audience are also horror fans, and younger listeners may not be aware, but back in the day there were many actors who were identified as horror movie actors. On a given year, you were almost always guaranteed a film starring Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, or one of several other actors who had no problem being tied to the genre. Ever since the passing of those greats, we've only had a handful of actors that embrace the horror genre and love playing the part of the villain or the heavy in a movie. On today's show, we have a modern actor who has entrenched himself in playing all kinds of scary, creepy, and downright nasty characters, but who is himself a wonderful man in real life, much like many of his horror actor predecessors. So sit back and listen to my interview with what some would describe as a modern horror star. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? Oh, yeah, I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Woo-hoo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. 
Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh. ring, and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go play and have fun now. Folks, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to have such a great modern-day character actor on the show. He's an Emmy Award-winning actor known for his dark roles on film and TV and for interpreting the works of Ray Bradbury on stage. His theater credits include playing JFK in Kennedy, playing a dozen different characters in A Christmas Carol, playing Mark Twain, he played Jesus in Jesus of Nazareth, and his portrayal of American writer and humorist Louis Grizzard, which has garnered him great acclaim. In addition to that, he created the one-man show called Stand Up, when comedy was funny. Starting in 2007, he moved into film and television roles in such productions as Circus of the Dead, Werewolf Rising, The Immortal Wars, an Oscar-worthy performance as Abraham Lincoln in Abraham Lincoln vs. Zombies, and Rob Zombie's Three from Hell, just to name a few. But it was his role in the Facebook cautionary game Take This Lollipop that really put him on the map as a fiendish star. He's been on several TV shows including LG15, The Resistance, Lost Tapes, True Blood, Kill Spin, and Hell's Kitty. But he's gone down in history as one of the greatest and scariest unsubs on the hit show Criminal Minds, listed as one of its 14 most notorious serial killers. His awards, which are numerous, include an Ernest Kearney Platinum Award for his staged theatrical reading of Ray Brad. Bradbury's Pillar of Fire, which was also named Best Solo Show of Hollywood Fringe and Best L.A. Solo Show in the 2015 Best of L.A. Theater Roundup at BitterLemons.com. In 2017, Ray Bradbury's Pillar of Fire also won a United Solo Theater Festival Award for its off-Broadway debut on Theater Row in New York City. He's also received the 2017 Horror Icon Award at the Optical Theater Festival in Italy, the 2017 Lifetime Achievement Award at iHolly International Film Festival, a 2017 Best Actor Award at Dark Veins Horror Film Festival, and a 2018 Best Actor Award at an anti-hero production genre film festival in Los Angeles, among so many others. Folks, we could be here all day just listening to the awards this man has won, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention that Ron Chaney, the great-grandson of Lon Chaney himself, presented our guest with the first Lon Chaney Award for Outstanding Achievement in Independent Horror Films in 2014, which was kept a secret from our guest at first because he's a huge Lon Chaney fanatic. He's an actor, a writer, a producer, and an all-around talented professional. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the show Horror's Prince of Pain, Bill Oberst Jr. Roger, I'm so glad to be here. You delight me by using the term character actor. That's a grand old tradition which has fallen into some disfavor, but I'm proud to be one. Oh, excellent. excellent. We love talking about character actors on the show, and, and you're certainly a great one. I mean, your talent is, is very impressive. Your body of work is very impressive. Well, thank you. Uh, the, 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 the varieties of humanity are endless, so a character actor can always work. Right, right, exactly. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us how you got into acting. Oh, the usual path, eh? unhappy childhood. Uh, I don't know anybody worth their salt who's a performer of any type who can say, yeah, I was really happy as a kid. Never happens. So in my case, you know, pretty standard issue. I was very overweight. I was really um, good in school. 
I had no interest in sports. <laughs> um, so I was a fat kid, the smart kid, the sissy kid, and the ugly kid because I had a lot of acne scars. So yeah, I picked on quite a bit. And in, in my day, back in the ancient times, <laughs> the ways that the kids responded to being picked on because, you know, violence was not really in vogue then for us. Right. You could either disappear or you could make your tormentors laugh. You could, in essence, become their performing monkey, and I chose the latter path. I started doing imitations of uh, teachers and principals, and the kids stopped hitting me, and they started saying, hey, do that thing you do. Wow. And I was like, aha, if you entertain people, they will stop hitting you. This is useful information. Right. That's great. That's great. So how did you get into theater? Can you talk about some of your early theater roles? Yeah, all I ever wanted to do was to be a theater actor, um, and no one would hire me, and so I hired myself. Uh, I, I took <laughs> historical characters that I loved. I'm very into words, and I, I like the idea that when we die, we leave behind nothing but things we've said and written, things that are remembered by the people who loved us. In the case of a public figure, you know, you might have a, a body of written work. Right. But it's our ideas, so the things that outlive us. Men, as Robert Kennedy said, men die, ideas live. And so I started portraying historical characters in their own words. Um, JFK, Mark Twain, Jesus of Nazareth, um, and became a touring theater actor. Then I started doing one-man shows of various things like Dickens' Christmas Carol, uh, and specialized in sort of bringing literature to life. And I was really happy doing this for 15 years, and then by accident I got into film and television. Interesting. So how do you prepare for doing a one-man show when you don't have someone to sort of play off of when you're acting? Well, you play up the audience. Um, it's, like a date. it's like a blind date, a very sweet blind date. You've never met this collective person before, the audience. Right. You'll never meet them again. They'll never exist again in that configuration. You take one person out, it's different. So you're meeting them for the first and only time, and uh, you kind of feel them and they feel you and you can sense if you, after you've done a couple hundred one man performances of a particular piece, you start to feel, okay, the audience is in this place tonight. And even though they're the same words, it's amazing what you can do just with timing and a change in emphasis. And in some cases like the Twain piece and the Kennedy piece, I actually had different selections I could choose from depending on the night. So I, I tell I teach acting some, and, and I tell actors the difference between theater and film is that theater is a blind date, and film is a ravenous lover, and that's the difference. Nice. That's amazing. So, like, for example, when you play Jesus, and you did that for 10 years, right? Yes. Yeah. So when you when you do a character like Jesus, um, were you channeling your inner Jeffrey Hunter, or did you sort of, you know, put any portrayals of Jesus out of your mind and create your own interpretation? Kudos for the Jeffrey Hunter reference. Yeah, it was a nice portrayal. I wrote to um, Powell, who did it for Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth, because I really, really like what he did. So when I started out, I, I just wrote out of the blue, and he wrote back. He was on a British television show at the time, I think, playing a doctor. Wow. And he said, um, the only small advice that one might give is when you feel most like shouting, whisper. And that was the extent of his advice. It was very helpful, actually, because people bring their own preconceptions about a character like Jesus, uh, right. or, or whether they are religious or not. And so what I wanted to do was to recreate the freshness 
that his original hearers might have experienced. So that was, I love ancient languages, but yeah. they become dead with, with translation and familiarity makes them dead. And I wanted to revive some of that. So like I, I, the Lord's Prayer, I did that in Aramaic, um, just so that it would be startling for people to hear. And then I did the direct translation from the Aramaic into English, which is not at all what we have in the King James. So right, right. Yeah, things like that. Wow, that's fascinating. So when you when you approach something like Lewis uh, Lewis Grizzard, actually, I wanted to ask you about that because I had not heard of him before I I started preparing for our interview today. Can you tell the audience about Lewis Grizzard and who he was and what he did? Yeah, uh, Grizzard was the Garrison Keeler of the South is the best way to describe him. Uh, he was omnipresent in Southern entertainment in the 80s and 90s. I mean, omnipresent. He was on Carson. He was on Designing Women. He had his own TV specials. He toured the South. He had um, the most, at the time, the most widely syndicated newspaper column in the world was his. He was in over 500 papers. Wow. Um, this is in the era of Irma Bombeck and uh, Art Buchwald and the great newspaper columnist. So he was everywhere. And he was the first person to present the South in a non-caricatured light. And, and what I mean is that he represented, the, and I'm a Southern person, and I, I, I understand what he, what he was doing. He, 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 he represented the way Southern people actually feel or felt during his era, as opposed to the caricature. And he was very self-deprecating, always first to make fun of himself and of Southern people which made it very palatable for people outside the rest of the country. So I, I uh, played him in his own words for 20 years after his death. He died at 47 of a heart aneurysm. Wow. And his family hired me to play him. Wow, that's amazing. And how long did that go on for? 20 years and, and counting. I still, in fact, I have some performances this year. I still occasionally will do Grizzard. He's still very popular in the South, particularly in his native Georgia. Wow, that's excellent. That's excellent. He was sort of the Mark Twain of the South. He and Twain are like bookends of the 20th century. Oh, okay. Or Southern culture. All right, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm up here in Maine, so that's probably why I hadn't heard of him. <laughs> and you must have regional, there must be regional personalities in that part of the country where you are oh, that yeah. would be virtually unknown outside of the rest of the country. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, but it's totally fascinating. And you also worked on, um, was it more than one Ray Bradbury production that you did, or was it just mm -hmm. the one? Can you tell us about it? No, that? two. Yeah, uh, the first that I did was a staged reading of Pillar of Fire, which is Ray's 1947 novella about the last dead man on Earth. And then the second that I did was portraying Ray himself in an off-Broadway production, which later moved to L.A. and was touring pretty good before COVID shut us down. And it's called Ray Bradbury Live Forever, in which I play Ray. And both of those were done with the approval of his estate. That's amazing. I saw some pictures online, too. You, you wore prosthetics to make you look a lot like him, correct? To begin In the beginning, I did. Um, I dropped the prosthetics um, later, except for some very small pieces, because they're very uh, restrictive. My original idea was I'm going to do a Mark Twain type, you know, Hal Holbrook Twain recreation of Bradbury. But as I toured the show and, and got people's reaction, they were reacting really to his material, just as they did when he was alive. Right. His, 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 what he wrote is much more interesting than himself, <laughs> um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. That's great. I love Bradbury's stories. Can you tell us about, there was a, a time when 
uh, you were in Pasadena, and there was a power outage that was threatening to cancel the performance. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's what led to me actually developing the um, portrayal of Ray. So I, at the time, I was only touring with this novella, which I dearly love, about the last dead man on Earth. And we were doing it at Ray's, what he called his hometown, L.A. Library in Pasadena. It's a Carnegie Library built back in the 20s, and it reminded Ray of his Carnegie Library in his hometown of Waukegan, Illinois. So he hung out there a lot. He's dead by this time. And I was doing the performance there, and we were all set up inside to do it in the great, what they used to call the great hall of the library. And then the power goes out all over these multi-blocks of Pasadena, the power's out, and it's getting dark. So we go to say, what are we going to do? We're going to go ahead with this performance? You know, okay, let's move it outside. So we moved it out onto the lawn and just started the performance. And the people who had come to the performance sat down. And then other people saw this, because I'm, I'm, I'm dressed like a, a, a corpse who's been in a coffin for years. So I'm barefoot and in rags and dirty, <laughs> and I'm climbing trees and shouting Bradburyisms. And so people started saying, what the hell is this? You know, people, baby strollers are pulling up. So we, we got quite a crowd. Anyway, finished the performance, and I did Q&A. I never do Q&A huh. after that performance. I never do it, but we were outdoors, and so we did it. And somebody said, is there a dream project you have? And I just dared to say yes. You know, I don't look anything like Ray, but I would really like to play Ray Bradbury. Nobody's done it, and I'd love to do this. Wow. So then afterwards, I had two of his friends come up, and they said, hey, if you're serious, um, here's the email address. Write to his daughter. Tell him we sent you and get something going. And that's how that path began of getting to the show. But it would never have happened had the power not gone out and had we not decided we're just going to go ahead with the show. That's the way show business is. As long as the show goes on, something good can happen. Exactly. Exactly. So and speaking of the show going on, at what point did you segue from film, I'm sorry, from um, theater into film and television, and how did that come about? Oh, seven, And it was because of my father. I had an old MS-DOS computer that I coded on, and I didn't want anything to do with modern computers. <laughs> so I was a touring theater actor, and uh, my web presence was rudimentary. And so my computer died. And I told my dad, I said, yeah, a computer died. I'm going to, you know, he said, you need, a, you need to get an updated computer, get a modern browser, get an up. He said, you're going with me to Costco, and I'm going to get you a damn computer. I'm ashamed of you for not having it. <laughs> okay, daddy, fine. So I go with my dad, and he buys me those, like, all the bells and whistles. Well, it came preloaded with browsers and this program called Mandy.com, which was a film and television job oh, website yeah. at the time. Yeah, I remember So I just flipped through there, and I saw the History Channel was looking for someone to play General William Sherman. I didn't think anything of it, but then it kept nagging at me because I'm from the South, and Sherman was presented as a great demon when we were a kid. You know, Sherman came through and burned everything. Right. And so I thought, huh, well, I have a blue coat from A Christmas Carol, and <laughs> so I downloaded some pictures of epaulets from the web, taped them to the coat, nice. <laughs> used my beard from Jesus, dyed my hair red, and did a little monologue and sent it in. That's and, it was, you know, they said uh, immediately, I got a response, come to Washington uh, for an audition and wear the same uniform and makeup that you wore. That's awesome. I don't have a uniform, Hunter. <laughs> you know, I got taped on epaulets. So I contacted a Civil War reenactor, borrowed an actual uniform, oh, wow. drove to Washington, parked in the Silver Springs Metro Station, did my makeup there at like five in the morning by flashlight, and get on the Metro 
fully dressed as, you know, Sherman with the, the with, yeah, uh, this is pre-911, so I had the uh, uh, sword and the replica wow. pistol and everything, and go into the History Channel, do the audition, and got the job, and it ended up getting written up in the Wall Street Journal, wow. and they were kind enough to mention me, and so I thought, oh, I'll go to L.A., and I'll become like a, um, a Los Angeles um, historical actor. But of course, I was a couple decades too late. There are no historical actors anymore. <laughs> but after starving for a while, I realized that I was scary and began doing horror movies. And here we are. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And speaking of, you know, you mentioned dressing up in the uniform. Um, you had another incident, too, where you were uh, auditioning for Adolf Eichmann in the World War II drama The Glass House. Can you tell us what happened about when you were going to the, from your car to the, to the audition building? Yeah, that was in an old business district of L.A. where there are people who've been there for um, a long time. And I was walking down the street toward the uh, audition space. Um, and I, of course, because like, I always go overboard, I had the full uniform on, the full replica, the medals, everything. I mean, I was fully SS'd out. And I was walking down the street and a woman was sweeping off her stoop. And it could have come out of the 1940s, you know? She was literally sweeping off the stoop of the little store. <laughs> and she saw me, and she spit. Oh, jeez. And she spit again, and the spit hit my uniform. Oh, man. And then another person from another shop hurled a um, profanity at me, and I just, I decided to keep walking and keep my back rigid and just sort of let the scene play. And so, yeah, I was insulted and spit upon as I headed to this audition. I was really proud of it because it felt like it felt like a good and cathartic thing because I had just appeared in this old neighborhood representing a great evil, and they were able to respond to it. Wow, that's incredible! It reminded me of the old, you know, the, the Catholic Church before there was a, the uh, formal exorcism ritual. There was a layman's exorcism ritual, the Vade Retro Satana. Uh, get behind me, Satan. Get back, Satan. Right. And it was very rough and earthy Latin. Vade retro, Satan, Satana. You know, you're just like sweeping Satan out the door. Get the hell out of here. You drink the poison yourself. And that's what it felt like. Wow. That's fascinating. And it's funny because you wouldn't think that, you know, like you said, the neighborhood seemed like it was something out of the 1940s because you wouldn't think that nowadays mm -hmm. people would react that way. They would be like, oh, this guy is obviously a cosplayer, you know, or something. I don't think you can cosplay Nazi yet. I hope not. That's true. I hope That's you a good point. Never cosplay Nazi. <laughs> but I mean, I had the maybe it was the posture, uh, maybe it was the haircut. I don't know. I've been told that when I'm Nazi'd out, I've done it a couple times. That it really looks like something out of the past. I guess I have that kind of face. That's awesome. That's great. I mean, that must help with you know p playing parts and stuff. And you know, speaking of, you mentioned horror movies becoming a horror actor. You know, I've seen your name up there with the likes of Boris Karloff and Vincent Price and Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, who who all identified as horror stars. And you know, every year we were guaranteed a movie with at least one of those actors that would come out. And um, they were so closely identified with the genre, and they were happy about that. So would you consider yourself a modern-day horror star? I would take away the star. I never use that kind of language, but I'm a modern-day horror actor and damn proud of it. I love the genre. Um, we don't deal with death. and We pretty it up. We don't deal with the fragility of the human body, the vulnerability of the human condition. We don't deal with fear. We sweep it all away in Western culture, and horror is the one genre that you can say you're going to die. I am too, but so are you. Right. <laughs> and we get to face <laughs> death and play with it. You know, like 
it's it's almost like there's this darkness, Roger. And if you examine what's in the dark, it becomes less dark because you master it, right? Right. So horror lets us take out this weird, mushy thing that we don't want to deal with, and we can feel it and play with it and 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 put it in our hands like Play-Doh. And then when we put it back on the shelf, we've got some familiarity with it. It's not this big, scary thing. It's death. And we're like, I've seen you before. I've played with you. I right. think that's the benefit of horror. Right. That's amazing. And so I'm so happy to see, you know, an actor out there that's, that is okay with being a horror actor. I mean, there aren't too many left. You know, there's, you know, yourself and then Lance Henriksen and Robert England, but it's not like the old days. And I, I like seeing that. I want to see that come back some more. I want people to be comfortable saying, yes, this is what I do. This is what I identify with as an actor. And, you know, I can do other things, but, you know, mainly. Me too. Um, I hear from a lot of misfit people. I'm a misfit toy too. But I hear from a lot, a lot of people who feel they don't fit into the world, who love the horror genre. And I was one of those as a kid. And there's a need for it. I'm really proud of being associated with it. That's great. That's awesome. So can you walk us through uh, 2011's Take This Lollipop and, you know, how that came about and and the impact that it had on the audience? Yeah, uh, Take This Lollipop was at the time the most successful Facebook app ever. It had over 100 million downloads. It won an Emmy. Um, it was it was huge, uh, and it came about because a guy named Jason Zada, who's this incredibly creative director and web designer. So Jason he created this thing called Elf Yourself, which he sold, and it was out every Christmas. I think oh, yeah. it's still around, where you can like take your family members and put right. their heads on little fancy elves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he created that, and uh, that's what he was known for. And he had this idea to do something for Halloween. And nobody knew what it was, and he wouldn't tell us what it was. So I went to the audition, and I had at that time started to change all of my online marketing for uh, the creepy guy, because that's what the work that I was getting right. was as the creepy guy. And so I think that's what got him interested in seeing me. So I did the thing. I did the audition and um, got the part. And still didn't know what the hell I was doing. And we get, we're shooting in Linda Vista Hospital, which is this old abandoned hospital in L.A., which has been used for a million things, in this dingy room. And I'm staring at a blue screen or a little computer monitor. And I was like, <laughs> okay, Jason, now you're going to finally tell me what I'm looking at? <laughs> he said, no, I just want you to go dark. Go to the very basement of darkness. Go to the basement. Wow. So that's what he did. I'm just, I don't know what I'm staring at. He just directed <laughs> me through the shots and a paw on the screen. And then a month later, the damn thing comes out and it's a Facebook app where this creepy stalker, me, <laughs> goes through your Facebook profile and starts picking out pictures and looks up your address and he's coming to get you. Oh my God. <laughs> and it went viral. It went crazy. And I had people, uh, kids in LA were saying, mom, that's the guy that stalked me on Facebook. Oh jeez. <laughs> And, and then Jason came back to me last year and said, I want to do an update using new technology. So we did an updated version of it in which the stalker morphs, takes over your identity. Oh, wow. And that was successful, too. That's awesome. And is it simply a game or is it, would you say it's like a kind of a cautionary tale? It was an app. Um, and it was a cautionary tale because at that time, 2011, people weren't thinking about all the information that we were giving to Facebook. Right. Um, and it, and when people saw that 
anyone could, from looking at your Facebook profile, identify where you were, your friends, could match up those pictures with other pictures using search services and find their names. They were really scared. There was a lot of reaction videos. Some of them are still on YouTube where people's jaws are dropping open saying, dude, he knows where I live. <laughs> so it, it definitely was a cautionary tale. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. And you wore, I'm sorry, you wore your um, T-shirt and boots from your role as uh, Cannibal Dale in the movie Dismal, correct? Oh, absolutely. I'm always in a white beater. And <laughs> I have my favorite white beater in my killer boots. And always, Roger, always on the horror movies. They're like, we're not sure what we're going to put you in yet. Always it's this way. That's funny. And they're like, you know, we're just not sure. And then it's like, um, put him in a white beater. <laughs> and, and and give him a crazy haircut. I just did a I did a Bitcoin commercial. It's running right now for Grayscale. Grayscale Bitcoin yes. truck. Yeah, I've seen that. So, so I played this weird villain up on a rooftop, yeah. and uh, I knew they were going to do something funky. I had on the, the Euro suit. They wanted a Euro villain. I was like, they're going to do something funky. <laughs> so so the, right the morning of the shoot, the director comes to me and says, are you familiar with a show called Tiki Blinders? I said, oh, shit, they want to give me that. They want to give me that haircut. And he said, how, how aggressive would you be willing to go with this haircut? I said, just shave it. <laughs> so they did it, but they left part of the fringe in the back hanging, and the director came in, and he squealed with delight. <laughs> he said, you look crazy. You look crazy. And he loved it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's always the way. It'll grow back. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Greetings, this is Mr. Lobo. Are you a sinsomniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white low-budget pot boilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, drive-in snack bar ads, and worse... <clears throat> <clears throat> Well, we like to say they're not bad movies, just misunderstood. Stay up late with Miss Mittens, your host, Mr. Lobo, and a revolving door of special guests, fellow horror movie hosts, robot monsters, and lovely Real 7 girls for a late-night TV slumber party that we call Cinema Insomnia. You can watch us on Channel OSI 74 for Roku. We even have some episodes on Amazon and Alpha Video DVD. You may never get a good night's sleep again. 
Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkning Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So one of the things I've read about you when you're getting into a role is that um, I don't know. Well, actually, you could probably answer the question. Is it for every role or just some roles where you sort of sequester yourself from the rest of the cast and the crew and even, you know, any kind of outside contact when you're between takes? Yeah, it's the only way I can work. I'm not good enough to be on my phone moments before the take. I've seen actors who can do that and they're fantastic, but I can't do it. I have to... I have to leave the world and go into that world. So I put my watch away. I turn off my phone. It doesn't matter what time it is, and it doesn't matter what's happening outside of the world I'm in. It's the only way I can work personally. And you stay in character? If I can. I mean, you know, you don't want to drive people crazy with that. So, um, you know, I'll have casual conversations, but I don't I don't go overboard. You know, I don't want to sit and chit-chat. It, it's the fine line between not being rude. Because right. I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis. I can't get away with that. <laughs> you know, they say things like, please, thank you, excuse me. But people immediately sense what you're doing, and they they give you space, and it's nice. Okay. It really, I mean, it, the difference, uh, there are a couple of times where I've given in and said, oh, okay, you know, I really want to talk to this person. and had a conversation in depth. It kills. It kills the work for me. Right. Because you don't have the energy anymore. You gave it away. Right, right. And do you find like if you, you know, because you were talking about, especially like with Take This Lollipop, he, the director asked you to go to a dark place. When you have to go to a, a really dark place and you're doing a movie or a TV show and it's for an extended period, so you're doing this sort of sequestering and trying to maintain that, like you said, without being rude to everybody, does that ever spill over into your real life once you're done with the project and you have to kind of figure out how to shake that off because you've been in this state for so long? Yeah, always. Um, it leaves a scar because, you know, they're, like anything else, it's neural pathways. If you play the violin and you learn to play the violin, <laughs> there are those neural pathways right. for your fingers. And, you're, you know, you know how to do it. And you, you probably will never completely forget. Uh, so, yeah, every single one of them leaves a little piece of darkness. And you can feel it sometime popping up occasionally. If you commit yourself to any... Emotion, I mean, fully commit, it will leave a mark on you. It's supposed to. Right. And uh, and it does. So there's some roles that I really can't wait to leave. Some I wish would linger more than they do. And But every, every single one of them leaves a little piece. It's very astute of you to ask that. I mean, people would say, oh, it's just a horror movie. But if you commit to it, it doesn't matter the budget level. If you're committed, it, it'll leave a mark. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. So, um, let's talk about Abraham Lincoln versus zombies. Was that in direct converse, competition with Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter? Because they both came out in 2012. That's why it was made. It was made by the Asylum. Uh, the Asylum is the company who they do much more now, but at that time they were known for doing mockbusters. Right. Okay. And Abraham Lincoln versus zombies was the mockbuster for the huge budget. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln versus vampires on the hopes 
that people all over the world would say, I heard about this movie, Abraham Lincoln versus something. This must be it. <laughs> and sure enough, it became the most successful movie Asylum had up to that date. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, and I played uh, Abraham Lincoln in it through a weird route. I'm completely unqualified to play Abraham Lincoln. I'm 5'9". <laughs> but I ended up doing it and loving it because I love historical characters. It was like a throwback to um, theater days of playing historical characters. Only he was fighting zombies. <laughs> I I loved it. I mean, I loved both movies, but I thought your performance was great as Lincoln. And like I said in my intro, I've even read that, you know, people consider that an all, if they were giving out Oscars to the asylum, you would have gotten a, a Best Actor award. Well, thank you. I, I wanted to play Lincoln just as he would have been if he, instead of fighting the Confederacy, in addition, he had to fight zombies. So that's what I tried to do was just to play him as he actually would be. I love Lincoln. He's a... The melancholy of Lincoln, it's so undervalued in society now, but if you take away his melancholy, he's not who he was. Right. And it's funny, too, because the, like, the way you played it is Lincoln is so iconic to begin with. And then to heap in the fact that he has to fight zombies as well, it just makes him that much more badass. I mean, we're talking about a guy in real life who was in the middle of a speech and a fight broke out in the audience. He jumped down off the platform, stopped the fight, went back up and continued his speech. <laughs> that is Lincoln. He, you know, the, the month before he died, somebody mentioned something to him about getting old. <laughs> he was like, hell with that, give me an axe. <laughs> they bought him an axe. And with one hand, he outstretched. He just held that, held the, he tipped it. He used to do it as a young man. He held onto the handle, and with one hand, he outstretched the axe. Wow. It's like, it's, that's just, yeah, he's a strong man. And I think he would have done fine against zombies. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only line I loved more than saying, um, what we need to do is kill all these zombies, says Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. The only line I love more was a, a talking dog movie I did with Dean Cain called The Three Dogateers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was the evil dog catcher. And yeah. I got to say the line, uh, you dog, stop this car right now. And that was fun. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I, I also read that um, uh, when you were on the set of Scream Queens, that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was, was having a hard, hard time not laughing because you were cracking everybody up. I just did what she said to do. I did the performance <laughs> that she showed me, and she loved it so much that, yeah, she blew a take by laughing, and I was like, all right. <laughs> Make Jamie Lee Curtis laugh. That's amazing. She's a hell of a director. I love female directors, and there are so very few. Relatively speaking, I'm amazed at how few there are, even today. Yeah. I love working with female directors. Jamie Lee has a way of making everybody on set want to do what she wants them to do. Nobody feels like they're being told what to do. Right. They all want to get on her team. That's great. That's great. I've heard that Rob Zombie's similar, too, and you worked with him on uh, uh, Three from Hell. So what was that whole thing like? Rob is, yeah. He is completely in charge of his set. He's very aware of his persona. I, I respect a person who has sort of created themselves, and they know that persona, but they also know who they are. So right. the persona is not a lie. You know, it's just magnifying certain parts of yourself to the public. Right. Um, so he, he knows his persona, and when he does his tweets and his promotions, he's Rob Zombie. And on set, he's Rob Zombie, the director, and his crew absolutely respects him. They have a continuity person who's been with him for years, and she came up in between 
and she's, I mean, straightening everything. She's looking at every hair, every button, really tight continuity. And I whispered to her, I said, you're good. And she said, no, Rob's good. And I want to make it good for Rob. And I was like, wow. That's awesome. That's so cool. Unbelievable. And how, how was it working? You know, with, were you, did you have any scenes with Sid Haig at that point? No, I did not have any with Sid. He had already finished his work and, of course, was quite ill then. Right. Mosley and I had scenes together. We'd done a couple of movies together, Bill and I. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was fun. That's amazing. So let's talk about Criminal Minds. How did that role come about? My agent uh, sent me up for the role. And thankfully, the director of that episode, Matthew Gray Goobler, who played Dr. Reed on the show, uh, Matthew is a big horror fan. And I had done a role that he had seen. And so he asked for me and wanted to see me. And I did the read. And I got the job. And then I got to the set. And I lucked out because my makeup artist was a Lon Chaney fan. Nice. He was working on American Horror Story at the time. And so Christopher was like, let's make this an homage to the wounded monsters of Lon Chaney. And he borrowed the ear from American Horror Story from the character Pepper. Wow. The pinhead. He said, don't tell anybody I brought you an ear. <laughs> so I had this big ear. I had brow. Uh, I was sort of hunched over with a hunchback. Uh, he made this really pitiful wounded monster character, which I loved playing um he was a murderer but you felt sorry for him and that's what cheney did and that was sort of my best opportunity to do that for a mass audience and i'm glad it worked wow that's great and i, I guess uh, adrian barbeau and tobin bell were on that episode did you have any scenes with them oh yes they were my parents when they were teenagers and then growing up they were my parents and um the woman who raised me in the woods had died and i just found out that tobin and adrian who were brother and sister in the show had got it on as teenagers, and I was the result. Wow. So I'm curious that nobody's told me the secret of my birth, so I kidnapped my birth mother, Adrian. <laughs> she's, a, she's an amazing actress. She had real tears in her eyes over and over again. Wow. She, I was like, she, she's great. I had to put barbed wire around her neck, and I was so worried. You know, She's like, she's Adrian Barbeau. Right. I put the barbed wire around her neck, and I said, is this okay? And she said, no, it should be tighter. Oh, my God. I was like, well, well, all right, then. <laughs> That's a mark of a pro. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember her all the way back from, you know, Maud, and she's just been in so many things, too. That's just been unbelievable. I asked her, I said, do you, are there any projects that people will mention to you or you see on TV that you forget you've done? And she said, oh, God, yes. Huh. Wow. And I was like, that makes me feel better because I've only done 200, but that happens to me sometime. And so with her, I can only imagine. Right, right. Wow. So, uh, Bill, we've got your new movie now. Uh, it's called Painkiller, with co-starring Michael Paré, correct? That's right. Okay. And the film's very timely, and it's basically about the opioid epidemic. Uh, there's a mass vigilante going around killing not only street-level opioid dealers, but also anyone involved in the pharmaceutical in- industry, whether they be a lobbyist or even a CEO. And, you know, those, if those people are adding to the problem that's going on, this vigilante is, is killing them. And your character is sort of at the epicenter of this tale where you're an internet radio show host and, you know, you're specifically talking about the problem that's going on with the opioids because you've lost a loved one to a drug overdose. So uh, how did this role come about? 
Well, the executive producer, Tom Parnell, I had worked with on a movie called Stress to Kill, um, and the director, Mark Savage, and I have worked together, and I love them both dearly. They're friends, and uh, the real button on I Have to Do This was the fact that Tom's own son tragically died of uh, opioids a couple of years before he made the movie, and this film was his attempt to deal creatively with that incredible grief of losing his 21-year-old son. Right. Um, and so that's the, that was the basis of the movie, and I thought, you know, if, if this is coming from a place of real-life pain, and I want to give it everything I have. I'm not sure at all that I'm the right person to do this, but if they ask me, I, I want to try, and, and I did. Nice. And, uh, I mean, your performance in it was great. I had the good fortune to be able to watch a screener of it with my wife. And it, it's just, like, you, as you just mentioned, you know, about the director and his family and what happened, it, it came across as a very personal film. And not only that, it was a, a cool vigilante movie because I love vigilante movies. And I have to say, watching the film, I felt really invested in your character. And to the point where it was like, I was just like... There were moments where my, you know, the hair on my arms would stand on end because you were giving such a stunning performance in this movie. And I don't want to really give anything away, but um, how how did you get into the mindset of this character? Oh, that's not hard because I have my own latent anger, which I keep in check by the grace of God. But sure, when people cut me off in traffic, I imagine the car exploding into flames. It's my first thought. <laughs> my first instinct is never love. My first instinct is, uh uh-huh, you're going to get yours. You know, you know how humans are. So I just let that go and just embrace (laughs) it. It's really problematic, right? I mean, this is peripheral revenge. I'm going to kill people who are involved in the industry, which killed my daughter. It doesn't mean you had anything to do with it. In fact, one character says, I never met your daughter. He's like, I don't care. You're going to die anyway. Right. So it's very morally problematic. It's a real trick to make people cheer that kind of stuff on. Oh, and I definitely was was cheering throughout the movie. And, you know, uh, one thing I really love, too, is, is, you know, you're this talk show host and you're talking into a mic. But every scene showing you doing that was well shot to the point where it was very interesting. It it could have just been a dude sitting at a microphone talking. But you not only was the camera work there, but you were acting too with the way you were, you'd stand up once in a while and move around. It wasn't just you hollering words into a microphone. That's Mark and David, um, the cinematographer, David Richardson and Mark Severs. They've worked together for years. And when you get a director and a cinematographer who work together really well, they get those kind of shots. And I really wanted to please Mark. You know, I, I love a personal relationship with my directors to the point where I want to please them. You know, they're like daddy or mama. That's the best way to work. And you can just look at just the way they say cut. You can know, yeah, they're happy or they're not. So in that way, it's a service industry. You know, you become a servant to work and make them happy. Right, right. That's great. You know, there's a great line in the movie where you say, pray every day as if everything depends on God. Act every day as if everything depends on you. And I just love that line. There were so many good lines in this movie. And, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I had a problem with the dialogue because the, the radio dialogue was so fast, so fast, so rapid. And we, we had, they had specific time lengths. I didn't want the shot to go on long. And I'm very given to pauses. So it was a discipline as an actor to pop off those lines without pausing. Wow. That's fascinating. 
So now, for example, um, well, not for example, but your co-star, uh, Michael Paré, uh, I go way back watching him on TV, as you probably do too. He was on, of course, The Greatest American Hero, and he was in Eddie and the yeah. Cruises. What was it like to work with him? Oh, Paré's awesome. He's There are a few great movie actors that you know we all grew up watching who are still working, and he's one of them. He's, uh, to me, in my mind, he's an action star. Uh, because yeah. he does it so well, you know, the fights and he's got the looks and, um, we had some scenes involving squibs and he was like, no, you got to put this here, here, give them, give them to me. He's like, so, you know, where to, where to put this squib? You need these here. Here's the way you sell it. Oh my God. He's good. He, he knows, he, he knows how to sell action. He's a consummate professional. That's awesome. That's awesome. So is painkiller. I didn't have oh. to fight him. If I didn't have to fight him, he'd have kicked my ass. Right. <laughs> You would have had to get a stuntman. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. So is, is Painkiller out yet? Or where can people find it? Yep. Uh, it came out yesterday, and it's on demand. I know it's on Apple TV, and it's on most of the on-demand platforms. Excellent. Excellent. Are there any actors that you've worked with in the past that you've been in awe of? There are many. Christopher Plummer is one. Wow. Um, Robert Loggia is one. I don't oh, know if you wow. remember Loggia. He, yeah. A great action star. Many of the uh, biggest people that I've worked with are also the kindest and the hardest working. And that's been really instructive to me. Like I did a thing with Hugh Jackman where Jackman was, uh, he did uh, television commercials for Toyota for China. He was their spokesman for a while. And they do oh. short, they do uh, short, short films for commercials. They're, you know, six, seven minutes. So I did one with him and we had a scene and, um, uh, we'd already shot the two and they'd shot his side. And so they were going to shoot my side and all they needed was a shoulder. And they were like, you know, Hugh, you're not in this. You can go back to your trailer. And he was like, no, I'm going to stay here and feed Bill lines. And they're like, you don't have to do it. We don't need you. And he said, Bill I said, yes, Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> If the situation were reversed, would you do this for me? I said, yes, of course. He said, good. Then let's do the scene. Nice. That that you know that that level of professionalism, and I thought at the moment, this is why you're Hugh Jackman. Right, <laughs> that's incredible. Logia, uh, I worked with Logia near the end of his life, and um, Logia was already slipping into some mental, some uh, uh, mild dementia, which became worse as uh, near the end of his life. Right. But right. we were doing this um, picture together, and I said, Mr. Logia, your relationship with camera is amazing. How do you do this? What is your relationship with the lens? And Loji was like, the camera is your father confessor. You got to tell it everything. Huh. That's all he said. That's all he needed to say. Right. There it is. Right. Yeah, he was a great actor, too. I loved him. Okay, awesome, awesome. So, um, you know, you've played everything from Jesus to Mark Twain, and you did mention uh, one of your dream roles would be um, playing Ray Bradbury. Uh, do you have any others that maybe you'd like to play someday? <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't look enough like Bradbury to ever play him on film. The stage has been fun to do, though. But on, on film, you know what I really like to do? Phantom of the Opera, but it doesn't have to be at the opera. And what I mean by that is the character of Eric, uh, in fact, has become romanticized. What it originally was, and the original appeal, the reason that Cheney wanted to do it in 1925, was because Eric is a monster. He was born the way that he was, he was literally born that way. Nobody threw acid in his face and, 
there's no accident. He was born that way. Right. And his parents were so repulsed by him that they sold him. And he ended up traveling in carnivals across the Middle East. And that's where he learned all the things that he learned that made him the monster that we see in Phantom of the Opera. So this idea of a, a wounded monster who is wounded because of the way that people have reacted to him, um, it doesn't make him less monstrous, but it adds another layer to it. And so I keep telling young directors, you know, Phantom of the Opera is in the public domain. Right. And you can set it anywhere you want. Rip it out of the frame. It doesn't have to be at the Paris Opera House. Just keep that dynamic there. And, uh, and I'd like to do that before I die. That the original be ending of the Cheney version in 1925 was Eric dying of heartbreak at his organ and his skeleton being found years later. And preview audiences hated it, hated it. And so they went back and reshot the ending because people couldn't accept a sympathetic monster. Wow. That's incredible. I had no idea about that. But my my sympathies are always with the monster. Of course. Always. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes, you know, some of the Universal classics classics because, you know, the Frankenstein monster, the Wolfman, they're sympathetic characters. They're, you know, through no fault of their own, they end up being the monster. Right. That's right. That's right. So now, Bill, you've got like 20... 20 credits listed in like pre or post production that you have upcoming. Uh, what can you talk about of any of those? Oh, there's a bunch of things in various states of funding. You know how that goes. Yeah. I've got about 10 that are in post production doing a need an ADR or sound or color. A couple of things that are coming up that I'm excited about. I signed to play Hitler in a straight world war two drama to be shot in Romania. Nice. Um, and that's maybe excited isn't the right word, but it's a challenge because uh, Adolf Hitler is another example of something that's become uh, caricatured or romanticized, either one. He wasn't a monster. He was a man. He was a human being. Right. And how did this happen? How did this human being who acted monstrously come to be? And um, those are the waters I like to swim in, so I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to Mexico to do a film this fall called Dead Iris. And this is by a young director named Adrian Corona. He's very into Mexican mythology. And so this is uh, digging back to the Aztecs. There's been a strong sweat lodge culture in Mexican mythology and the belief that through the sweat lodge, you can contact the other world. Wow. The world of the dead. So this, um, the director cast me as an American expat who's gone down to Mexico and he's completely gone you know, he's very wildly native, like a Klaus Kinski kind of a thing. And he's a shaman, um, and he leads people into the sweat lodges to have mystical experiences. So this kid and his sister come, and they're looking for a dead girl who's passed away, and they want to contact her. And so my character takes them into the sweat lodge and facilitates <laughs> her coming in from the other world, but it doesn't end up well at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That so sounds I'm, great. I'm really interested in doing that. Nice. That sounds so cool. So where can the listeners find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, all of them. And it's always the same at all. It's just Bill Oberst Jr., one word. And I always used the junior because my father never wanted to be confused with an actor. <laughs> That's great. And still doesn't. Still, to this day, he tells me, you need to get a real job, boy. You need to get a real job. Wow. Oh, my God. Still. <laughs> So it never, it never changes. But when I went into this business, he said, well, you better use junior because I sure as hell don't want people associating me with that. Sometimes, 
to my delight, people will say to him, hey, you got another movie coming out. He's like, that's not me. <laughs> that's as, awesome. as John F. Kennedy said, well, we all have fathers, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, Bill, it's been amazing talking to you. I still have a whole bunch of other questions about your career, so maybe you'll come back on the show again sometime and we can talk further. I'd love it, and I want to thank you for having a real conversation. It's very rare in today's world to do what we just did, so thank you for what you do. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, man. God bless you. Bye-bye. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed my interview with the unbelievably talented Bill Oberst Jr. Please be sure to check out Painkiller as well as his other great movies and TV shows. Remember, you can send your feedback to us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. And uh, don't forget to check out our website at havenpodcasts.com, that's podcasts plural, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos, as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, please go to wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review, especially on iTunes, because that way more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com